Thank you for downloading this documentary on one from RTE Radio 1. For more information, visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one. An early November afternoon, Darndale on the north side of Dublin city, three months after Gary Douch's death. This is where he lived. Always in Darndale, there are large groups of children everywhere, hordes of them, tiny four-year-olds, tall, thin, older guys, gangs of girls in tracksuits and tight jeans. Thirty feet of black smoke curls towards the sky, another stolen car set on fire. Move further on, through roads named after flowers, snowdrops, tulips, a large green at the back of the estate. It looks empty, it looks like the edge of the world. A group of boys on horses. With the large November sun behind them, for a moment they look almost iconic, like a beautifully composed shot, a western of young men and their horses. Twisted shopping trolleys glint in the sun, burnt out fridges lie nearby. This is the green where Gary used to ride his horses. The boys are upset. See the fire these days, look. There's more of filth bags over there, look, dirty cramps. Dirt bags. They were friends of Gary, or more their big brothers were. He was often here. Look at them, they're dirty scumbags would leave you alone. I don't care. Fuck off. Where are the police? See the red They're over in the red car. Fucking bastard. The red car, see? Look at them torn and all dirty punches. How do you know he's a. Who? How do you know he's a guard? The red car slowly drives away. Do you think the guards are tramps? What age are you? In the distance, the black smoke still twists high into the sky. A nearby road, a group of little boys. Their faces are cold, pinched, dirty. There's an almost feral air about them. He died in the cells. Um, his, his name's Gary and he died in, in the Mojoy prison. Uh, and he smoked. Like everyone in Darndale, they knew Gary. He was stabbed in, in the cells and almost brought shit over. They know what happened to him. Ten. They're so young. Ten. Eleven. Ten. They look even younger, undernourished, seven maybe. They've noticed the black smoke too. Yeah. Car. A rob car. Are you going down to have a look? No. Going to his house. It changed. So oh, he can smoke his weed. He's smoking weed, he's off with a He's off with cocaine. So, yeah, we asked him about Cuddy. Hi, 
Three months after Gary Douch's death in a holding cell in Mountjoy Prison, a lot of people are asking about Gary. Inside the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice, a retired judge is speaking. Uh, Reverend Fathers, ladies and gentlemen, the Department of Justice, with umpteen ministers, has always been a very secret society. Justice Dermot Kinlan is the Chief Inspector of Prisons, one of the voices who spoke out about the state of the holding cells in Mountjoy, the holding cell where 21-year-old Gary Douch died only four months ago. I, my very first year, four years ago, went and saw men who were required to sleep on a floor covered in urine and vomit. In the brand new year of 2004, the judge made an evening call to the holding cell in Mountjoy. The prison service are very proud of their mission to keep people humanely, the judge wrote in his 2004 report. What I saw this evening shows that message to be unctuous in piety. I have asked the minister to realise that really people are not against the department. They spread their mattresses on the floor, the report continues. The Washan Basin has obviously been used for a urinal and there was a distinct smell of urine. These cells were never intended as sleeping quarters for prisoners and are unsuitable for that purpose. The officers and prisoners say there is frequent violence. The department took grave exception and turned into attacking the messenger rather than the message. But that has never been denied. This report, like his others, are submitted to various authorities and to Michael McDowell, the Minister for Justice. Now, those cells were again seen, if they're in the basin of Montreux, the scene of a vicious murder. He's referring to Gary Douch's death. The CPT, at my request and suggestion, went to Montreux, but it's all finished. The European Committee for the Prevention of Torture turned up in Mountjoy two weeks after his death. But the two holding cells in the base of the prison have disappeared. The walls that divide them knocked down. CPT who came from Strasbourg arrived, but by then all the evidence was gone. The base is destroyed, no longer in use. There are three separate inquiries into Gary Douch's violent death in the holding cell on that warm night of August the 1st, 2006. We're waiting with interest to Mr Mellet's report. Mr Mellet is heading the independent inquiry authorised by the Minister. I hope the Minister does publish it soon. I intend to investigate it as soon as it's published. He doesn't know that yet, but I'm alerting him to that possibility. Mr Mellet is a retired Deputy Secretary-General of the Department of Justice. After the speeches, there is tea and biscuits. Justice Kinlan is preparing to leave. The driver opens his door and the old judge is driven away from the centre in a 06 black Merc. Sometimes appearances can be deceiving. There's a basement in the Georgian building. It's part of the Jesuit centre, a meeting point for young men. The door is open. In a room about the size of a holding cell in Mountjoy are some young men and a Jack Russell. 
They are unaware of the press launch above, and it's really wet out now. Look at that day out there, it's horrible, isn't it? Yeah. Do you see what I done when I walked in? Did I have an umbrella in my hand when I came in? No, was it was a small one. Yeah, a small one, yeah. Why does everyone keep saying that? This basement is a halfway world, different to the basement in Mount Joy, but similar too. Like Gary Douch, they've taken the well-trodden path from St. Patrick's Institute for Young Offenders to Mount Joy Prison. Same with the jacket. I just took an NBA jacket. And like him, they're now out of prison and still alive. Even Russell's buttons are robbed and they were robbed out of the machine and his boxer shorts. They're upset that there's a thief in the group. Nonetheless, some of them want to talk about Gary Douch, about Manjoy, about the holding cells. That the door of the holding cell shuts at 10, and after that you're lying on the ground in the dark with other men, just a low blue light glowing on the wall. Kevin is one of the young men. It was a murder waiting to happen. I mean, it's it's nearly every second day, not if every day somebody gets battered in the hole and say, gets punched around, or else gets stabbed, gets cut up, gets whatever. I mean, I know, I mean, I know what I'm talking about. I mean, a large scar runs from the corner of his left eye to the downturn of his mouth. Two brushes. Blade broken off an arm around, I stuck onto a toothbrush and I got sliced by another prisoner. Well, they stabbed me in the back as well, so uh, then I got stabbed in the face and all, so put back onto the same land, the same prison. They said to me, well, Look, I used to still going to fight. I mean, I'm not getting stabbed with this prisoner. I said, You still going to fight. Look, I was asked to want to press charge, I said no. And the two you still going to be arguing with. And of course I was, I was going to retaliate, you know. Brian Mike, he got back on the same land with me, and I got back on the same land with him, and I got my own back on him. I cut him up, you know? He lights one John Player blue after another. He knows what happened to Gary, too. The next morning, they find out that he's in a bad way. When he got here, I mean, like, he would have came in there probably at the latest 10 o'clock at night. It could have been 8 or it could have been 8 o'clock, but at the latest 10 o'clock at night. So you can imagine the hiding he got off that prisoner. You know, you can imagine the way he got off. I mean, and they even hit him and put him in and sat on top of him with a baguette, excrement on top of his head, if they say, like, shithead, you know? And asked certain prisoners, like, you put his, his, his penis up and stick it in his mouth and all. I mean, it's just a sick thing to do, you know? Kevin drags on another cigarette. He and the Prison Officers Association are in full agreement. The home cells is like bigger than a normal cell because there's so many people, but it's still very confined. Christmas 2003, the prison officers sent a letter to the Governor, John Lonergan. A particular area of concern is the two holding cells in the B base area. The all-too-frequent use of these cells, the letter continues, to house anything from 10 to 22 inmates is shocking. It'd be like, um, I know I'm living around, but... 14, 15 people in that living room. Like a normal living room in a suburban house, but with 15 men lying on the ground. 
This spring, the prison officers again wrote a letter. Animals would not be held in such conditions, they warned. And then you have mice and cockroaches. You can't wash yourself because the sinks don't work and food are being thrown on the wall, butter yolks are stuck in the ceiling. And on. The next morning, you, you, you want to have a bath for about 10 hours and all, but you can't, you know, you have to wait till they sort out what land you're going up to and where you're going to stay and all, you know. The letter goes on. No beds are provided for any of the inmates, only filthy mattresses. These are placed on dirty floors in the holding cells and equally dirty seats in the reception room. When I go down in the holding cells and I don't know where I'm going to go, my head is all over the place. And then next of all, start taking the piss. It could be a good banter and then it could be just like taking the piss and somebody could say the wrong word, like you're in front of about 14 people and somebody says, go on out of your mother. That's it then. You could just explode and kill that person, like, you know. I mean, I could have been in that cell that night with Kenny Douch. Kevin tells me about his first memories of Mount Joy. He was five years old, visiting his father. That continued until his father died of liver failure at 37. By 18, Kevin was in Mount Joy jail. By 18, Gary Douch was in prison too. To know Gary's life is to understand his death. Had the arc of his universe curved almost inevitably to inside that holding cell on that hot August night. In Darndale, the parish priest lives by the side of a muddy field in a grey house surrounded by high steel railings. So we're now in Darndale Church. Um, this is the church where Gary Douch uh, had his funeral mass. Father Terry Murray is the parish priest. He knew Gary, saw the holding cells. The holding cell where Gary Douch lost his life, um, which is filthy, um, overcrowded. Yeah, and I've seen some of the prisoners bringing in urine-stained mattresses to sleep on. Um, you know, and I've spoken to them when they've come out to see me, and they, the conditions in that room are appalling. Gary isn't here to speak now a ghost in a room that no longer exists. People I talk to are always mentioning his family, his mother. Father Terry keeps an eye on her, and he has called her for me. He too tries to give a shape to Gary beyond the headlines. Gary asked for protection from upstairs on the landing eh, where he was, and um, so he was removed downstairs to the holding cell. And he recognised the name of somebody on the holding cell going in, and he didn't want to be put in the room, and he was put into the room um, with this particular person and a number of others. He knew Gary well. He'd never stay still. Do you know when you're talking to him, he'd, he'd kind of was move his head backwards and forwards to kind of try and stress the point, and uh, always smoking. Do you mean? Um, now he was small, um, about five eight, um, black hair, blue eyes. I've got the memorial cards on the desk. I showed you. Um, but I'd say he, you know, he'd be able to stand up for himself. Don't you know that kind of way? Um, but that night he didn't. Really, and I suppose there are questions with regards to that that Mr. Mellard is looking into now. Each time I go out to Darndale, Father Terry is there in the parish centre. He's a big man, usually wearing combat shorts and a gold chain, always surrounded by women and children signing papers, licking stamps, organising football practice. 
Sometimes he arranges to meet me and then can't. A young student has attempted suicide. A boy just blew off his fingers in the schoolyard with a firecracker. An 18-year-old just had a massive heart attack while ODing. But sometimes we get to talk. Gary wasn't an easy kid, do you mean? I think his mother would say that, you know. Um, he, you know, he had a difficult background. Um, and he didn't like school, do you mean? He would have been in the school here in the parish. And then he transferred to Lusk. Um, so he's been in institutions most of his life. Yeah, and when he was out of prison prior to his last kind of sentence, like, you know, drink would have played a big part in Guy's life, do you mean? Um, uh, and, you know, he would have done damage to himself that way. Um, but, I mean, it was inter quite interesting. I was looking at the past seven years here. 23 young men have been buried from this community, this particular area, either drug-related, drink-related, being in stolen cars and losing their lives as a result of taking stolen cars, or suicide. And that's a lot. 23 young men. I will hear this men. over and over again. Death is like a virus in Darndale. Gary's death was not just political, it was very personal too. At the manner in which he lost his life. How are you, Maggie? Eight weeks after Gary Douch's funeral, a phone call comes through from Margaret Rafter, Gary's mother. No problem, Mag. She'd be the... No problem, we wait for you. All right, Mag, thanks. Bye, 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 bye. Here's the lads bringing in the potatoes now. A little while later, the priest and the mother are sitting in the front yes. pew. And we have a wedding in here tomorrow. Another wedding. And I suppose, you know, with all the funerals that we've had this past couple of weeks here, um, I'm looking forward to the wedding tomorrow. Because it's been say. a tough time, hasn't it, Maggie? Gary was sentenced to three years in Mountjoy for an accumulation of offences. Driving with no tax and insurance, possession of drugs, and breaking a barring order against his mother. That got him the extra 12 months. You're sitting in this room, and 90% of the people that are there are, are stoned or they're cotton pick a mind, or they're high on drink or drugs or whatever. And then you have to queue up. You're given a number, like as if you're playing bingo. You feel like saying check when you call it's 50 or 49, whatever. But um, it's a very, very, it's a horrible feeling. You know, it's, it's not nice. The last, on the last occasion I went to see Carrie, there was two girls, and one of them had two or three little tiny tots, and she was pregnant on another one. And they arrived in with a roll of tin file this Lent. I mean, they were actually doing the stuff in the ladies' toilet with the kids there and everything else, you know. And then when you go in then, you're sitting here and he's sitting there and you have somebody listening to you and everything else. And um, it's not a very nice place. Not nice. He never wanted to worry me or anything like that. I mean, I, I was on the last visit. He said, show me his war wounds. And I said, oh, is that the same thing? Anger? I mean, you're not going to anger management. Oh, all right, not that. I don't need that. I said, would you go to school? No, no, I'm getting out. And I had my head sewn on. I'm going up to Priorswood House and everything else and all that. And uh, I want a surprise 24. So won't you give me a surprise 24 birthday? I said, of course I will, of course I will. I said, you know, so never actually got it. <laughs> Can he would have been due for release now, sometime around now? Yeah, and that's the painful part, really, isn't it? You know, knowing that he's not coming, like, you know, he's not coming home. Never. 
I go down to the grave and I roared and bawled, get out of that bloody grave. I said, you shouldn't be, shouldn't be in that at 21 years of age. You've the rest of your life, you know. And when was his 21st birthday? 23rd of July. He's 21 in eight days. You know. That's what I said to Terry there when he was down in the house. I said, in 20 years' time on this estate, there's going to be a whole generation of 40-year-olds missing. In there. Right, yeah. Literally. In seven years, Maggie, there's 23 young fellows from this estate. This area who've died. Um, you know, and it's frightening. I, I, I told my friend years and years ago. The night of my Robert's 21st, I put uh, a lad into a taxi. He was at the 21st. And he was only 17, 18. And I said to the taxi fellow, make sure you bring the two of them. One's Belcamp, one's Darndale. I got a phone call the next day from my friend and she says to me, um, I won't say the other name. Um, he's at the dine out in Port Marnock. And I said, I don't believe this. And then another lad had died a few days later. And then another lad. And then another lad. I said to Sue, I said, this is, my Gary's not going to see his 21st. I said, at this rate, I said, straw going, dying under different circumstances. All his friends were dying under cer- different circumstances. And she says to me, not at all, not at all. And I said, I'm telling you now, I said, I have, I'm at getting this premonition. And lo and behold, when he, when he got sentenced, I said, well, he'll be there for his 21st. And a few weeks later, a few months afterwards, he'll be still there, like he'll see 21. And eight days later, he's dead. One night, he walked out to our house in Talla, jumped up and down on the roof of her partner's car and threatened to burn the house down. Maggie phoned the guards. And so he spent his 21st birthday in prison. He was always, yeah, big fat rat, yeah, cow, yeah, bastard, yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, the usual. But when you say, we're not saying, like, he's an angel. Like I've never said... Maggie never has. I have he, never said he... brought he, trouble to the door. You, you know, and I'll never, den- I'll never defend him for that, like, and all that, but... Um, I, had, I remember I had a new pair of jeans and a lemon top, and he said, Jesus, you look brilliant, your hair and all. I was getting the highlights and all, the hair and all, and I was only coming back, and I had false nails, and I said, you look bleeding brilliant. And he gave me these two silvermans, and three, Jesus Christ, I nearly choked him. I said, yeah, hell, you're trying to kill me. Shut up, shut up, shut up. I want to talk to you about my birthday when I'm getting out. They won't let me out for the day, because he had applied, he had the nun's heart scalded for it. See, would they let him out for a day to celebrate his 24th? No, I knew my heart and soul. If he got 24th, he wasn't going to go back that night. There were 525 prisoners in Mount Joy the night Gary Douch was killed. Capacity is debatable, but 464 is a number often quoted. The place was crowded. I thought I was having heart attacks, I was getting pains everywhere, and I said, oh, sweats and everything. And I said, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. So I went up and about 30 steps up to see your man, the governor, and um, all the chaplains were there, and, and your mum was sitting over there, and I said, oh, right, and he says... Well, he says, I'd like to introduce myself, bloody, bloody, blah. I says, he's just that and the other. And uh, he says, and now, Mrs. He called me Douch. And I, I says, my name's not Douch. I said, I'm divorced. And I paid an awful lot of money to go back to my maiden name. So, <laughs> kindly. <laughs> but I said, better still, just call me Margaret. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, but um, he said, says he, um, we're very, very sorry. I said, well, not half as sorry as I am. And um, he says, I'm not going to ar- disagree or argue. And I says, I, well, I, he said, um, it, it should never have happened. I said, no, it shouldn't have. So they were sorry for that. And I said, well, so I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, I said, my son is still dead, you know? So uh, it just says, 
words cannot express. I said, how come, I said, you put seven people into this little tiny thing? He said, we don't put people in cells by ones or twos, put them in in uneven numbers. There were seven men in the holding cell that night. Gary, the main suspect, and five others, one of whom was a 17-year-old boy. He shouldn't have been there at all. No one is sure of what happened in there between the hours of 10pm and 6.30am, when only six walked out to breakfast. Because you knew Gary. Gary didn't talk. Gary melted at you, screamed. Even if he was in good humour, he screamed at you. And uh, this is how Terry and I find it very hard that Gary didn't ball. No one heard anything that night. We leave the church, walk into the parish centre. Father Terry has a gift for Margaret. She collects thimbles and porcelain fairies. There's your thimble. Oh, thank you, Terry. That's from Lourdes. From Lourdes. Now, where's Metrogori? Oh, I hate it, Metrogori, so... So, I I, I, you have to put my name down for Lourdes. For Lourdes, no problem. And yeah. Sue. Oh, yeah, I was yeah. there. Oh, look at that. He was, into the tom- he was in the tomato house. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? Are you going to go to Lourdes? I am, She's yeah. She's getting next to you, we'll go to. Going to Lourdes, yeah. What is that? No, I'm not going for the religious end of it, now. I believe it's the new pizza. <laughs> We'll be in a few months now. Ah, no, we will. We'll go in, we'll go in, uh, get we'll in the pool uh, and everything else. Go for peace. Peace and tranquility. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. My pleasure. This is part of the letter that Maggie wrote. Um, Terry, I don't know where it's a start to thank you. I know now why Guy loved you so much. You saw no wrong in him. You treated him as a special person and as a friend. Guy didn't have many good friends. Most of them used him, as you and I know. They took him for a fool. I miss him so much. I can't wait for the day I join him and ask him, did you suffer in pain? I have not slept one single night since all this happened. I feel like I let him down. When people ask, how am I? I tell them, I'm grand. But I'm not. How do you ever get over losing a son or a daughter? It's not fair. Gary never had a lot in life, but he had my love, even though he drove me mad. I'd love to have him back again, with no barring orders. Now all he has is a small, damp, waterlogged hole. Instead of enjoying life, growing up, maybe having children of his own, I sit and wonder, Terry, is there really a God at times like this? I doubt it. Sorry for going on, Maggie. Oh. When I'm full of anger, oh, I write and write and write. I I wrote, look, Gary was born Tuesday, died Tuesday. I'm buried with Tuesday. And every time I get so frustrated, I write. Margaret will be back later for the flower arranging class, but now she goes to the graveyard. We walk to his grave. Maggie points out other boys, 21, 18, 17. I ask how each one died. Suicide, car crash, fights, drug overdoses. We pass about six such recent graves on the way to Gary's. About a little after eight immediately that Gary had been um, in an incident and I said you don't get phone calls because Gary had been stabbed twice and I brought that issue up as well Mitchell only on Tuesday but um, I rang back to Joy and I, I asked I said is, I, is my son dead and he didn't answer me and I asked again I said please just tell me is Gary dead and he still didn't answer me and I said I'm asking you, is my son dead? And he 
said, I'm very, very, very sorry. Maggie has planted 24 forget-me-nots around the border of his grave. One of his friends has placed a Bob Marley flag there, and there are little Rastafarian figures she once brought Gary home from the Canaries. There's a couple of cans left there too, and a joint. And after all the arguments and the tears, in the end, this angry and regretful mother stands alone by her young son's grave. A month later, Father Terry's living room. In the graveyard, Gary Douch now has a granite headstone. It has replaced the Bob Marley flag. The forget-me-nots are buried under a layer of gravel and there is a fresh mound of earth four graves up from Gary's. I've lost about 20, 30 friends. I've lost an awful lot, an awful lot of friends, you know. Darren was Gary's best friend. He was also best friends with Dwayne, the latest grave in the cemetery. The day before Dwayne died, we were down at Gary Douch's grave, standing at the grave, standing over the grave. And Dwayne says to me, he says, uh, he says, Jesus, Gary's down there now, six foot under. He said, we're the only two left. That's exactly what he said to me. He said, we're the only two left. And it was just getting dark, it was in the evening, it was, yeah. And we were standing over the grave and he said that. And it was just like, cause, like, it was always me and him that used to go down the graveyard all the time. Always me and Dwayne, like, or else you'd bring the young fella, his son, like Dwayne, son, Dwayne, he had his son Dwayne as well, bring him down as well, like, you know. We'd go down and we'd sit down and, like, just sit down and pray and talk to them and all, and, you know. Darren and Gary were best friends from the age of 12. The rest of his family moved to Tala, right? and uh, Gary didn't want to go to Tala. He wanted, wanted to stay down there. So they dragged him out to Tala. He was out in Tala. And he walked the whole M50 back home, right? <laughs> That's right. He, he robbed a horse or something, jockeyed the horse halfway down to the M50, and then walked the rest of the way home. Then one of the lads seen him, and then picked him up and brought him back. So he was in down there. So he was around that, like, the way Gary was, he was around down there, and, like, people liked him that much. They didn't let him stay in the house, like, ah, oh, yeah, nigga, come in, bring him something, there's a bit of grub, whatever. He called him nigga, usually, because of his tan. Most people in Darndale did. I took him into my, my place, because he got on very well with my ma, like, you know? My, my ma loved him, she did, yeah? So he got on very well with my ma, and uh, she didn't mind him staying, so... I I let him stay. I let him stay in the spare bed. I had a spare bed there for him. So, so that that's he was, he was living for about three years, three four years, like, you know. And why didn't he stay in his mother's house? He just didn't. I don't know. I don't know why. He just didn't want. He didn't like Tala. And he didn't like. I don't know. Just he had problems with his ma. Yeah. <coughs> Last year, I shared a seven, and like the two of us, like two brothers, like you know, in the cell, like. Two of us looking after each other now, like he'd be running out to the landing in the mornings and looking for ah, oh, give, give us a roll up or fucking whatever, you know, running around and all. And like running around with no top on and all, like mad. He talked he'd talk to anyone, like he anyone knew that came in and that, like he was straight over talking to them and all, like and he, he knew everyone, everyone knew him. So he was a mad jumper, he was real, real hyper, you know, real hyper jumper, like <coughs> used to have David Gray blading in the mornings. Oh, now the cell doors are open. You'd have David Gray blading in the mornings, you would, yeah? 
and everyone was looking at him, ah, that's leading, that's nigga, I've leading, right up leading again. Like, they'd, they'd say, like, few of the lads would say, when you turn that down, like, he'd get, he'd, like, he's one of these, ah, you fuck off, I'm not turning nothing down, and all like that. But, like, see, coming to the club, before, just before, you was looking forward to getting out and all he was, Gary was. Because when, when I was in the cell and all, he was telling me, like, he was getting very worried sick about his dad, like, his dad's in England. And he was telling me, like, oh, my dad's not well, I'm getting worried sick, I'm very worried sick about him. That's what he was saying, very worried sick. So my heart went out to him, you know, I got him a shot of the phone. Gary was only a little fellow when he left, yeah. He probably missed him. Yeah. So, Gary, he was getting worried about his father, so he got, he got through to him anyway and he got talking to him. Well, he was worried sick about him, he was, yeah. But he was looking forward to getting out and all he was, because he was saying to me and all, like, I'm going to get out now, I'm going to get my act together and all. Get stuck into the gym and all, don't do the gym and all. Get me life from, you know, get away from the drugs and all, stay off the drugs, because you start messing around with the heroin as well, you know. So you only start messing around with the heroin in uh, Mount Joy. See, Mount Joy is flooded with heroin, flooded. Because they're selling it in there and all, like, they're selling the heroin in there and all. They're trying to stay off and you can't. You can't stay off heroin in Mount Joy. It's impossible. Darren transferred to the training unit, the only place in the prison that is heroin free. Horrible it was, you know, just horrible. Next morning, and he, that's heard the news the next morning, and that's what happened. And I believe he was, he was kicked around that cell for about an hour. <clears throat> he got an awful death, a horrible death. Darren read a prayer at Gary's funeral. Dwayne read a poem. On October the 13th, 11 weeks after Gary Douch's death, Darren put Dwayne to bed. We were taking tablets all that week, we were. And then uh, <coughs> we had a bit of heroin. We started snorting the heroin. So that's what happens, like, you know, when I snort the heroin with the tablets, like, it all just catches up on you, and that's what happens, like, you know. The tablets were Valium. That's what they usually took. Like, before he died, like, he was in my kitchen and he was dancing around, dancing around my kitchen, you know, to, to me, my little cousin. And it was just sad, you know, like, he was happy. He was happy, you know, like, dancing to Shakira, I think it was, yeah. <laughs> Mad, mad, yeah. I was a good young fellow. He was like a brother to me as well. Like the two of them, him and him and Gary. Like I've lost two of them now. Him and Gary, like two, two, like they're like two brothers to me. They are, yeah. Hey, Amela. Hey, oh, sorry, come here. I'm going up to the graveyard now. Uh, with Carly. Well, I'm, I'm just leaving me man's now. Neve has a gentle face and golden hair. She is the fiance of Dwayne. He lies in the newest grave in the cemetery. Their little boy, Dwayne, sits in the car seat in the back. He is four years old. Gary's brother, Mella, is going to look after him for a while today. Neve doesn't like him being in the graveyard. Neve and Dwayne met at a carnival in Darndale when Neve was 14. She's 23 now. She tells me Dwayne was buried in the same suit he wore to Gary's funeral. She tells me little Dwayne used to be a very happy child. He's been acting up a bit lately. The driver's window starts to open and close. Nothing Neve does can stop it. Oh my god, it happened since he died. It keeps on happening all the time. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Stayed up. 
Gary's brother takes Dwayne. Near the new hotel, there's construction everywhere. Apartments with glass balconies and floor-to-ceiling windows. The bright and shining city drives on relentlessly. All the young men that have done it, like, you know, like, just can't keep being track. It's that menu. You can see the graveyard from the construction site. Just like Gary's mother, Neve passes many of the young graves until she stops at the final two. Gary's grave is just up there. Yeah, I know, they're right beside each other now. They sound disgusted. Yeah. <laughs> Such a waste. Everybody loved them. Her mother's house. The front room full to the door of her life with Duane. All wrapped up in newspapers now and emptied into black refuse sacks. <sighs> Just all such a waste. Like, after Gary died, three weeks every day, for three weeks he drank every day, every single day. So, like, I knew it really affected him. And all the years I was with him, he never once cried. I'd never seen him until we went to the morgue that day. And and I was saying to him, it's all right to cry, like, when we are at home. Because I just knew by the look in his eyes, I said, it's all right. I said, that doesn't, I don't think any less of you because you cry. I said, I think you're more of a man if you cry and show your emotions. So two of us just had a little cry. And, but, like, it just even, like, up till when we were away on holidays, the week before we died, less than a week before we died, he just couldn't stop talking about, oh, that song reminds me of nigger, this song reminds me of nigger, and, you know... Like, Gary was like a brother to him. He was like his little brother. Like, Gary looked up to uh, Dwayne. He looked up to him, like, even every time we were out or anything or we done that, and, like, uh, like if he was going to say something, he'd always, like, this is what I always remember about Nigga, like, he'd always look at Mordock, and he'd be saying it to him, and he wouldn't be talking to him, though, he'd be talking to somebody else. And Mordock like, what the fuck are you looking at me for? Will you say it to him? But he was looking at him to get his approval, like... Just like Gary was known as Nigga, Dwayne was called Murdoch after his favourite character in the A team when he was a little boy. It's all right if I say that, you know, like he always looked up to him and he just he just looked out they looked out for each other, like that was like his little brother. So they really like really caught him up. Like I was caught up over it as well. My whole family was, everybody was as well, because he was Gary was just like mad lively young flit, you know, you get a great laugh off him, but he'd a big He's a big softy really underneath as well, a big heart gold he had. He used to always stay in her house all the time and uh, like you'd wake up in the morning, like you'd have your house scrubbed, you'd have to your fry on and all. <laughs> like yeah, he's a real softy really deep down if you got to know him. But like that just really like especially the way he died as well. So do you know, I think I'm gonna make sure my child has that. I'm gonna make sure he goes to school and he does all the things that his daddy never done. Come on, Duffy. Bad Ty's gonna become the new Pope. <laughs> That's what he says. <laughs> Father said he's a Pope. Yeah. yeah. And then the first the first decision is all food for the new Pope comes from the jazz. There are no restaurants in Darndale, but the jazz is a Chinese restaurant only a minibus ride away. <laughs> Didn't invite him? Oh my god! <laughs>
Before that, he's bringing 12 boys to play football on a nearby Astro court. He's booked it for 65 euros for the hour. That's very good. Look for the chicken noodle soup, so. Soon, more of the boys arrive. Wayne just transferred to Colossal Dulig. He's in first year. On your meet. And he's doing well. Brilliant footballer. That's going to be his salvation. Oh, Karen Darnell! That was the stolen car then, did you hear it? Yeah. All the boys have seen or heard the stolen car. And it's only 20 past five in the evening. But there's kids playing around and everything. It doesn't stop them. In many ways, when the kids do see them, they go chasing it. Would you go chasing character? No. Be honest now, would you? I'll be honest. Yeah, I'd probably look at you. Yeah, so. I probably would, yeah. They continue to kick the football around, waiting for the minibus. Do you remember Nigger? Who was he? Uh, he used to learn it. That's right, what happened to him? Daniel. He died. He died. Oh, he's in prison. You got, yeah. How old is he, Raymond? Yeah. 21. Yeah. Have you noticed anything Wayne, about all the funerals that we've had in this church lately? Yeah. What have you noticed about them? It's nearly everybody dying nearly every week. Is that frightening? Yeah. Does it? Why? Because this case is probably me next. Why do you think it'll be you? I don't know. Just stand out. You must be wondering though, Wayne, I wonder who it will be next. Don't you? I think you'll be far 30. <laughs> The familiar black smoke curls towards the evening sky. That's a rob car. On the back roads now, just been set on fire. Maybe the one that you heard before speaking. How often do you have them round here? No. No. Every ten minutes. One a day. You get a lighter and you light it to something and put it in the pressure can and it goes up in flames. No. So it goes on. Get up, Dan, get up. Come on. Yes. We talk about the boys and about Gary, how sometimes Father Terry can feel them slipping away from him, his influence lessening. He was a chatty little fella, you know, he's always in your face. In kind of in, he was just a kind of, like a, a wild card, do you know what I mean? In, but he didn't deserve to die the way he died, do you know what I mean? I know there's talk of moving the prison from its present location to a, in a, in a, a site outside the city. Um, but whether or not they do, I think they still must look at the situation in Mountjoy Prison. And to prevent another Gary Douch, you know, we owe it to him and to those lads who are in there now um, to do something about it. Under a fire red sky, the boys finish up on the AstroTurf. Father Terry drives them in a hired van to the Chinese. On the way, the bus in front of them gets stoned. But that's okay. Father Terry will deal with it on Monday. He recognises some of the boys from the primary school. In the Chinese, the waitresses smile and giggle. The boys laugh and joke. Harry Potter's a legend. Do you find it funny that Harry Potter's taking cocaine? Drink club orange <laughs> and eat prawn crackers. With fried rice. Yeah. 
Thank you. And the young men in the Georgian basement will keep going to their methadone clinic. Kevin will stay in hostels and spend every Sunday with his two little girls. Margaret Rafter will wait for the Mellet inquiry to end and so begin her long journey through the Irish courts. Darren will wander through Darndale, through Tulip Grove and Snowdrop Road and visit his friends in the graveyard. Neve will try and find a new home for her and her son, put her boxes and sacks yet again into the boot of her car. The old judge will watch and he'll wait. And the holding cells have disappeared, the wall that divided them knocked down. A changed space, too late for Gary Douch, but the space in people's hearts remains the same. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.